Hello lovely listeners, welcome back to another episode of Coffee and Crime, a true crime podcast hosted by myself, Lisa Marie and Ray, where each week I sit down with a cup of coffee and I talk to you about a true crime story. So if that sounds like something you're interested in, then please hit that subscribe button. You can also get in touch on Facebook or Instagram at Coffee and Crime Podcast because the DMs are always open for you to slide in and we can have a chat about the episodes or anything true crime related. And with that, let's get into today's episode. Let's go! Hello everyone, I hope you are all doing fantastically. Uh, I have some news for y'all before I get started. So you may have noticed a few changes around the place. So firstly, the musical intro, which premiered in last week's episode, uh, Coffee and Crime now has a new logo and the way I post on Instagram will be different. It'll be way more consistent and of better quality for you lovely listeners. And some analytics. This is the 20th episode, so I'm just going to be looking over them. And I'm absolutely fizzing right now, guys. As of right now, as we speak, there is over 1,500 downloads. I'm sitting at number 21 out of the top 100 indie true crime podcasts on Good Pods. Uh, There's more links available to listen to Coffee and Crime. I'm now on Stitcher and iHeartRadio. And it's just been absolutely freaking amazing. So thank you so much to everyone who has rated, sent in reviews and messages. Please continue to do so because they do help the podcast. And it's awesome hearing what you guys think. So thank you so much. I'm just very overwhelmed with all the love and support. But today's episode, uh, we're going to be looking at a case that happened right here in Aotearoa, New Zealand. And this case came to mind after seeing in the world news within the last couple of weeks that uh, Adnan Syed, who was wrongfully charged with murder 23 years ago, is now free. And something very similar happened over here too. So I thought today I would share the tale of Taina Porter, Susan Burdett, and one of New Zealand's worst miscarriages of justice. Warning, the following episode contains adult language, discussion on gang activity, brutality, suicide, rape, and murder that listeners may find disturbing. The podcast is intended for listeners 16 years and above. Listener discretion is advised. So I'm going to start today's episode with what happened to Susan Burdett, who was the victim of an absolutely horrific crime. And I'm going to start with her because unfortunately she does get lost in this whole tale because of what happens to Tana. And I don't want to take anything away from her. So I'm going to start with her and then we'll get in to the other horrific crime that happened uh, as well. So the day was Monday, March 23rd, 1992, when 39-year-old Susan Burdett was last seen after finishing a night of bowling at Manukau Superstrike with her team, the Ratbags, and she headed to her apartment on Pa Road in Papatoi, a suburb in South Auckland where she lived alone. Susan was an avid bowler, like she had the full get up, you know, like her own shoes. She didn't have to borrow them from the counter which to me is like goals. (laughs) If you can turn up and not have to ask for your shoe size, which you awkwardly get wrong, then to me, you're winning in life. 
but she also had her own bowling ball, bowling gloves, like special hand oil, like the whole shebang. She was very accomplished in the world of bowling, had participated in many competitions, won lots of awards, and she was fantastic. She was described as a very bright girl, but basically just an ordinary Kiwi, New Zealander. Uh, Susan had a son when she was 14 years old, but her parents said that it would be better for her to put the son up for adoption. He did, the son, sorry, he ended up getting raised by his paternal grandparents, so his father's grandparents, and he thought that his dad was his brother until he was 20 years old. That's messed up. But at 20 years old, he reconnected with Susan and she was about 34, 35 at this time. So yeah, so she was last seen on the Monday, March 23rd. So when Susan didn't turn up for work on the 25th of March, the following Wednesday, she was an accounts clerk for a flooring business. Her colleagues were a little bit worried, you know, there was no sick call, no, my car's broken down, no word for her or anything. So Stephen Dawson, who was a colleague and a very good friend of Susan's, he and his wife would have dinner with her quite regularly. He said that he would go over and and check on her, make sure that everything's okay. So Stephen went over to the house, uh, saw that the blinds were all shut. He knocked on the door, no answer. When he tried the door handle, the door swung open, which is weird. Why, Why is it unlocked? He goes into the house and he finds Susan lying face up on her waterbed. That's an important part to remember. It's a waterbed. Her lower half of her body was naked from the waist down. Her legs were crossed at the ankles and positioned so that they were dangling off the side of the bed. And the upper half of her body was wrapped in a duvet blanket. Stephen didn't touch her, didn't try to wake her or anything like that. He knew that she was dead. Stephen also saw a bloody wooden baseball bat next to Susan on the bed. That's a very important piece of information to remember. It was next to her. Stephen knew that the bat was hers. Uh, She kept it in her room for protection, but ironically enough, it was the murder weapon and it had been used to take her life. So obviously Stephen called 111 and Detective Senior Sergeant Michelle Burke was one of the first on the scene. She pulled back the duvet and found that Susan's blood-soaked bra had been placed over her eyes. She had been struck on the head at least five times with the baseball bat, so the bed linen was soaked with blood and brain matter that had protruded from her skull. Her injuries were consistent with victims of car crashes. Like, that's how brutal this was. And then to top it off, there was evidence of sexual activity. Assumed rape and sexual assault, but I'll talk about why I say sexual activity later on. Examiners concluded that she had been murdered on the 23rd, the Monday, by the the injuries and the blood that had dried up. They had managed to pinpoint the time of her murder. So then a year later, to the day, March 23rd, 1993, Auckland police arrested 17-year-old Tana Porter for the aggravated burglary, rape, and murder of Susan Burdett. So who is Tana Porter and how does he fit into this? Tana Porter was born in 1977 in a South Auckland suburb called Otara. 
His mother was in her early teenage years when she had him, but unfortunately she drank all throughout her pregnancy, which caused Tana to be born with fetal alcohol spectrum disorder, or FASD, and alcohol-related neurodevelopmental disorder, or ANO. But these conditions were left undiagnosed until much, much later in life. Taina's father, Cedric Rangi, was never around. He left Otada and moved down south before Taina was even born, so he never knew his dad. Now, sadly, when Taina was four years old, his mother, who was still in her teen years, died of cancer. So she was very young when she had him. There was no exact age that I could find. But like, if when Taina was four and she was 19, that means she was 15 when she had him. But she died of cancer in her teen years. Like, that's insanely young. Like, that's crazy. So after his mother's death, Taina ended up going to his maternal grandparents' house but was predominantly raised by his mother's sister, his auntie, Terry McLaughlin. So due to Tainer's disability from exposure to alcohol in the womb, he was slow. He had a lot of difficulty for communicating from a very young age. He didn't do well in school, didn't mature as quickly as neuronormal people. And because of this, sadly, Tainer was attracted to antisocial activities He was very gullible, he was vulnerable, and he was victimized quite a lot. Like, he was a scapegoat. If anything went wrong, he would take the blame for things. He was just very much a people pleaser. So even though if it was something wrong that he didn't do, he would put his hands up and say, it was me, which kind of foreshadows what happens to him later in life. It is reported that he was severely mistreated in his upbringing, Um, There are no reports as to exactly what kind of mistreatment Tainer went through, but the members of his family were described as, quote, irresponsible, end quote. And uh, yeah, it is very common in New Zealand, sadly, that children are exposed to drugs and alcohol at a very young age. I mean, Tainer was before he was even born. So it's very likely that the family members uh, around him didn't stop that exposure. Now, Tainer also had significant memory deficits. He couldn't retain information given to him. And when asked questions, he would answer without consideration of his answer. And he would just fill gaps in stories with what he thinks the questioner wants to hear. And again, it's foreshadowing. It's going to become very evident later on. But what Tainer lacked in academic skills, he made up for other aspects in his life. He was a very talented rugby player. He represented Auckland East in the 1988 Roller Mills Rugby Competition. And he was a very talented musician, but he was extremely talented at car theft. So as a tween, between the ages of like 11 and 13, Tainer, he finished primary school and then hardly ever turn up to college. For my American listeners, primary school is like elementary and middle school, and college is high school. So yeah, Tana then started participating in car crimes, such as theft and vandalism to cars. At 13 years old, he held the record for most cars stolen in one night in the whole of South Auckland. 
at 13. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's crazy. Uh, Tainer did get put into a boy's home for his antisocial behavior, but was just a runaway case. He was a drifter. He didn't stay in any in one place for too long, and he stole cars and sold them to survive. But in August of 1990, he became very desperate for money because at only 14 years old, Tainer became a father to a baby girl called Chanel. So between 1990 and 1992, the car crimes continued. He had many run-ins with law enforcement, police, that kind of thing, but he was never a violent person. You know, these were just petty nuisance crimes, and I'm not dissing them. Like, he's he's being a little shithead, in all honesty. He's not a saint. <laughs> he's not adding any value to his life, um, but he was never a violent person. He became a prospect for the Munger Mob, which is a very big gang in New Zealand. Uh, being a prospect meaning he wasn't initiated into the gang, but he helped with low-level crimes. He ran around with them, became very familiar to them, and they kind of, you know, groomed him until he would become an adult and when they could initiate him. Uh, he stayed on and off at his aunt Terry's house. Uh, he and his baby mama stayed there, and he was making money wherever he could in order to support his daughter. So, yeah, like I said, he's being a little shit. Uh, he's definitely on the wrong path, but he's kind of already better than his own father because he's actually playing a role in her life. So, you know, it's, yeah, he just needs to kind of sort of shit out, really. Then in March of 1992, all the news outlets were plastered with the murder of Susan Burdett. And only a few days after the murder, Tainer and some of his friends were out walking and they were near the Manukau Velodrome Sports Centre when Tainer spotted a baseball bat in a culvert drain thing. And he said to his friends that that might have been the bat which, quote, wasted the lady in Par Road, end quote. That evening, Tainer told his cousin, his cousin's name was Martha McLaughlin, and he said to her that he put a blood-stained bat in the drain of the velodrome. He didn't just say he saw it. He told his cousin he put it there. Like, trying to be funny or tough or something like that. He's like 16 years old at this point, you know, trying to be cool. Like, yeah, that was me being all tough. So then on April 7th, just over a week since Susan's murder, his auntie, Terry, rang the police and told them that she believed Tana had something to do with the murder because of this baseball bat comment. Police gave Tana a very quick interview where he told them the truth, that he'd only seen it, and then it was somewhat dismissed. Uh, but then again, in May of 1992, he was interviewed by police again because Terry... His aunt called police and said she was adamant that Tainer was involved. Again, interviewed, nothing came of it. And at both interviews, Tainer obviously denied involvement and voluntarily provided hair and DNA samples, which immediately excluded him as a suspect. A year goes by and not much happens. Tainer is still up to his car thieving. But then he makes quite a big mistake. At the beginning of March 1993, 
He's got some outstanding warrants from the police. He doesn't show up for a few court dates. Um, But then one night he steals a car, which he does most nights. But this car belonged to a high-ranking member of the mongrel mob. So my guy is in a shit ton of trouble. Then on the 18th of March, police finally catch up with him and he's taken into Odahu Police Station for questioning about the car crimes. Now, during the conversation with the police, Tainer told the police officer that he wants to go straight, that he felt unwanted by his family, that he's failing his daughter, uh, he is committing these crimes because he's scared, he knows he's being sought out by the mongrel mob and the police, like kind of throwing this, oh, woe is me kind of thing. And he he's just trying to get pity. This is kind of the thing that Tana did. and it, But it is also a common characteristic with people with FASD to say what they think the other person wants to hear. Now, after the questioning comes to an end, Tana very passively asked the officer if they had got anyone for the murder of Susan Burdett. It, it was honestly like a passing comment, really, like he was just curious. But the officer interviewing him recorded it in the job sheet that Tana inquired about the murder, which instantly makes it suspicious. I, I, I can see why, but it does make it very suspicious. The officer told Tana that they hadn't got anyone, but if he knew something about it, he should say. Now, at first, Tana was like, oh, nah, nah. But then he said he knew who did it. But he wouldn't say who they were because they were in the mongrel mob and he was shit scared of them and that they would go after his baby mama and his baby. What I think happened in Tana's brain right there was that he could get the mongrel mob members that were after him in trouble and slow them down from catching up with him because he knew that he was in a lot of trouble with the mongrel mob. Um, But then the officer told Tana that there was a $20,000 reward for information leading to a conviction and at the discretion of the Solicitor General, he will be granted indemnity. Now that is a lot of big words. Solicitor General, discretion, indemnity, and it's indemnity is not the same as anonymity. That's remaining completely anonymous, whereas indemnity is just compensation for any harm, loss, or financial burden Tainer might experience from his involvement. So if he got beat up because he snitched, the Solicitor General would pay for hospitals, doctors, that kind of thing but people would know that he was involved. So like I vaguely understand that and I'm neuronormal of <laughs> to some degree. <laughs> and uh, like I said, I vaguely understand that. So does a 17 year old boy with neurodevelopmental issues and very little education, is he going to understand that? No, of course he's not. But he signed a form to say that he did and agreed to give over information. So basically he heard $20,000 and that was it. Tana was then kept in custody for the next four days, having interview after interview, all without a lawyer. Now obviously he's 17 years old, he's not going to think about getting a lawyer, but like, 
My guy, what a dumbass. Honestly, never ever go anywhere without a lawyer, even if you're innocent. But through the series of interviews, he gave various accounts of his knowledge of the crime, but also his actual involvement of the crime, saying that he actually did play a part in it, which is very bizarre. But all of these accounts were strewn with inconsistencies, contradictions, and somewhat impossible scenarios. So some of Tainer's responses were incoherent and very bizarre. When asked for names of the perpetrators, he didn't know their names, but then police started suggesting mongrel mob members that they were after for whatever reason. And then he, all of a sudden he, oh, yeah, I, I remember it was it was these two guys, like just went along with the suggestions of the police. So initially, Tainer claimed that he had stolen a car and took two mongrel mob members known as Dog and Hound, which honestly just sounds made up, uh, but they were names that the police gave him, and he took them to Susan's house to carry out a burglary. Tainer was the lookout slash getaway driver, and he didn't go into the house. He said that the two men went in and then came out with a bloodied baseball bat. But we know that is wrong because the bat was found next to Susan on the bed. But the police didn't say um, that's incorrect. They just let him just let him go off with all these stories. So after this account, police wanted to know where Dog and Hound lived. So Tainer took them to a house. Now, we don't know if this is the correct house or not, but he took them to a house and then went back to the police station. Upon returning to the police station, he said that he wasn't just the lookout. Tainer said he went into the house and saw Dog and Hound sexually assaulting Susan. Later the same day, Tainer changed the story once again. He said that he was at Manukau Superstrike, where he first observed Susan, and then Dog and Hound said they were going to follow her so that Tainer could steal her car. So when police asked what kind of car she drove, despite being a car whiz and knowing everything about cars, he couldn't describe it. He didn't know the make or the model, the color, or even the size, anything about the car. He had no idea, even though he is like a car wizard. Another red flag. <laughs> Hello. So police told Tainer that they were going to go to Manukau Superstrike and they wanted Tainer to show them the route he took that night with dog and hound to Susan's house on Par Road. Well, he, he couldn't. Tainer ended up getting lost. He didn't know where it was because he wasn't involved. But anyway, uh, they ended up on the street and then police asked Tainer to point out Susan's house. And he couldn't because he didn't know where she lived. But then the police said to him, quote, would it help if I showed you the house? End quote. So they're just feeding this young boy who has no idea of the crime. They're just feeding him information. And then Tana was like, yep. Yeah. They pointed it out and he was like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I didn't recognize it because the hedge outside the house had grown. When in actual fact, it had been trimmed to half its size than it was at the time of the murder. 
Like, how many red flags does Taina need to throw at the police? Like, yes, he shouldn't be given false information. It's just a terrible and unnecessary thing to do. But the police should have turned around and said, nah, my G, like, that's all wrong. Go home. Go home. He then changed his story on how they broke into the house. So sometimes he said they all went through a window. Other times he said they went through the back door. Literally in one sentence, he said that all three of the men, so Tainer, Dog and Hound, they all climbed in the window and Hound went through the front door. Like he just contradicted himself and, and gave over so many false things. Like it was just weird. And it, oh. he even changed his story on his own involvement. So at first he said he was the lookout. Then he said he was in the house, but not in the room. And then he even went to say he was holding Susan while Dog and Hound were assaulting her. Now, it's not surprising that he would downplay his own role if he had a role in this murder. Um, There is a very consistent trend you see with criminals who are turning on each other. They try and make their roles seem not so bad bad but the fact that he couldn't even answer simple questions about the crime is like dude honestly the police asked Taylor to draw an outline of how Susan's body was left because it was positioned and he couldn't do that he couldn't identify what type of bed she had which was a waterbed like you would remember a waterbed because it's a freaking waterbed that's so cool (laughs) And the fact that a 39-year-old had one, I'm like, yo, she's winning in life. But he couldn't even remember that she had a waterbed. And he couldn't remember because he wasn't there. Now, over the series of the interviews, Dog and Hound were then identified as Roy Wong Tung and Gert. However, both of these men had already given DNA and blood samples and they were cleared. Just like Tana was. So why were the police entertaining this very clueless 17-year-old who was given obviously false information about a horrific crime that needed to be solved? Well, Tainer said that he looked through a suitcase-type bag for money, but the bag contained paper. And indeed, at the crime scene, Susan's briefcase was found open and paper was spread all over the floor. So the fact that he got one detail correct, an absolute fluke, police believed that he must have been there. Because that fluke of a detail or the, that he got right was very specific and not released to the public. So this was considered his confession to the crime. The fact that he knew, well, guessed that a suitcase full of paper was in her room. That was his confession. Then after four days of these interviews, on the 23rd of March, 1993, the first anniversary of Susan Burdett's death, Tana Porter was charged with the aggravated burglary, rape, and murder of Susan Burdett. When he was officially charged, Tana broke down in tears and asked, quote, will my baby get the reward money? End quote. Because that's what all this was about. He, he just wanted to get that $20,000 for his daughter. It's just incredibly sad. 
So before Tainer's trial in 1994, his counsel obviously challenged the so-called confession, saying that they were the product of unfairness because of the indemnity promise, as well as interference from his aunt, Terry McLaughlin. When she heard that he was in custody and being interviewed for the crime, she called police saying like, I told you he was involved. You could have sorted this out a long time ago. Like I told you and you told me I was unreliable. Like who's laughing now guys? But the challenge was overturned. Uh, The trial was still going to go through, but nothing about his mental capacity was ever brought up here. So June 7th, 1994 marks the beginning of Tainer Porter's trial, during which the defense showed that Tainer's DNA was not at the crime scene. They talked about how he just wanted the reward money and that's why he gave the false information. But the prosecution made the case that no one would give information, false or not, unless they were involved somehow. His aunt testified against him. Terry testified against, but then again, are we surprised? She called the police on him. Um, She testified that he was a very troublesome kid and it was only a matter of time before his car crimes escalated into murder. Uh, It kind of exponentially went from car crimes to murder, Terry. Like you'd think there'd be some things in between. But then it turns out that old Terry was paid $5,000 to testify against him. It was later revealed that there was a minimum of three witnesses that were paid to testify against Tainer, receiving $5,000 each to do so. Essentially, the Crown argued that his confessions must have meant that he was at the home. So after a week of testimonies and debates and cross-examinations, the jury found Tainer guilty of aggravated burglary, rape, and murder of Susan Burdett. And on July 1st, Tainer, he's now 18 years old, being tried as an adult, was sentenced to life in prison. Now let's go back in time and talk about some other stuff. Between 1987 and 1996, a string of rapes occurred in the Auckland area. These victims ranged between 15 and 43 years old. They were all young, attractive, single professionals who lived alone. But it wasn't until 1995 when Operation Harvey was set up to investigate the rapes that happened between 1988 and 1992, which included the rape of Susan Burdett because of the DNA not matching Tainer. So even though Tainer had been charged for the rape, they needed to find out who actually did it. So it was weird that he had been charged with that. But anyway, in May of 1995, the police had a very strong suspect. And this was a man by the name of Malcolm Rewa. Malcolm had been arrested back in 1976 for a rape against one of the nurses who was on her break from looking after his wife in labor. So literally, he's at the hospital with his wife, who's about to give birth to their child, and the nurse goes on break, and he goes and he rapes her. Like, this guy's... mm. (sighs) Uh, He got jailed, uh, sorry, he got charged for that and was put in jail, and after four and a half years, he was released. So they had Malcolm on file. After his prison release in 1981, 
Malcolm joined the Highway 61 gang and became known as Hammer because he kept a hammer on his motorbike to sort out any issues, if you know what I mean. Uh, Malcolm rose through the ranks of Highway 61 and became a master at arms. So he was a high-ranking citizen, uh, high-ranking citizen, <laughs> high-ranking member of the gang. But after joining the gang, his nine year of terror began. He started raping all these women. One of these victims was a friend of his wife's. So after she had been raped, she went round to his wife's house where he was to be consoled and to, you know, have a cry and, and, and what you do. And she even said to his wife that she feels like her attacker was still watching her. And Malcolm sitting across from her at the table told her that, you know, it's okay if you need help or if anything goes wrong, let me know and I'll, I'll come sort it out. Even though he was the one who freaking did it. But <clears throat> that makes me so angry. So in 1995, with Operation Harvey looking into known sexual offenders, obviously Malcolm's name came up because of his arrest. And by May that year, they were able to potentially link him to a lot of attacks that happened because they had a shoe print that matched a pair he owned. And that honestly gives me Richard Ramirez vibes, to be honest. Shoe prints. So when it came to looking into the DNA found at Susan Burdett's home... They found a semen sample, which they managed to match to a blood sample that Malcolm's father had given to police. But while that was happening, in May of that year, Malcolm was attempting to rape again. He had driven up alongside a 15-year-old girl who was walking her dog and tried to grab her and pull her into the car. Now, thankfully, he wasn't able to follow through because the girl was standing right outside her house and she started screaming. So her father came out and he caught the registration of the vehicle that Malcolm was in. Now the registration was traced to Malcolm's wife. So as soon as police found this, as soon as they knew that he was connected to the attack on the 15 year old girl, they didn't wait. They went into his home. They released their dogs onto him as he tried to escape. And one of the dogs got him and bit him in his bare thigh. Good. I hope it hurt, Malcolm, you dick. So then he was charged with 27 counts of rape and sexual assault. 27. And this arrest came nine and a half years after his first attack since leaving prison. So when the news broke that Malcolm had been arrested for the crime that Tana was paying for, Tana felt a sense of hope. So Malcolm's trial didn't happen until the March-June of 1998, so about three years after he was caught and arrested. And in the trial, it came out that Malcolm had an erectile dysfunction, so he couldn't have been this aggressive serial rapist because he had issues downstairs. Now, Malcolm wasn't exactly happy with this information coming out about him. You know, he wanted to be like the super tough guy. I'm like one of the leaders of Highway 61, man. I don't want people to know about my dick. You know, like, yeah, he wasn't exactly happy about it, but it was important that we know. Malcolm maintained that he was having an affair with Susan, and that is why his DNA was found inside of her. He also said that he started supplying her ecstasy pills. So on the night of her murder, Susan went over to Malcolm's place to buy some pills, 
they had sex, and then she left for bowling. So Tana must have done everything he confessed to. Like, he used Tana's false confessions to his advantage. However, when Malcolm was being cross-examined, he became mixed up in his own lies. He said that he would see Susan in the evenings, but then he would say it was the mornings. He said that he wouldn't have driven to Susan's house because he had a distinct orange American truck and his in-laws lived nearby. But Malcolm didn't own this distinct orange American truck until 1995 when the murder happened in 1992. So that's obviously very incorrect. But the most damning detail was very, it was a very peculiar one. Malcolm said that after he and Susan had intercourse that night, she went to the bathroom and she commented on the very nice toilet paper that he had in the house. Apparently it was three-ply, so fancy-schmancy. Now, this was a bit TMI, but he added this detail in because it explained, in his head, it explained why his semen was found only inside her and not on her bowling clothes. He put it like, oh, you know, she she cleaned herself up kind of thing. That's not how that works. Uh, there would still be traces in her underwear and on her bowling pants, if that was the case. But at the crime scene, her clothes were found neatly placed in her washing basket. And on her, the clothes, there was no traces of Malcolm's DNA. It was only found inside of her. Now then, Malcolm's defense also put forward another suspect, and this was Susan's son. Remember him? She had him when she was 14. Now, they said that the motive that Susan's son, sorry, his name is Dallas, the reason why Dallas would off his own mum was to claim the $250,000 from the life insurance that she had just put him on to inherit, inherit, sorry, But Dallas had no idea that he had been put on the policy. He didn't know that his mum had died until he heard it on the radio the next day. That's awful. He said that he was at work and on the radio it came on like, 39-year-old woman found dead in her home in Papatoi. And he said that he was like, nah, surely not. But then he tried to get in contact with her and he couldn't. And then it came out that indeed it was his mum. So that's very, very sad. But he didn't think he was on the life insurance policy because they had only reconnected five years prior to her death. So, yeah, didn't expect that to happen. And then everyone who testified for Susan just wasn't buying the whole Malcolm and Susan having an affair They said that Susan wasn't the type of person, you know, she liked to bake and she liked to clean and she liked to go bowling. Like she wasn't someone who would get mixed up with a senior member of the Highway 61 gang. So the trial came to an end in 1999. And after the jury deliberated, Malcolm Rewa was found guilty to 27 counts of rape. But there was a hung jury on whether or not he committed the murder of Susan Burdett. So his DNA was linked to multiple other murders and his alibis didn't check out for those. Testimonies placed him in the same vicinity and he was charged with all them, but not the murder of Susan Burdett. Apparently there was two or three jurors who couldn't decide, but still he was sentenced to life because of the horrific crimes he had committed. 
Now, Malcolm immediately challenged this conviction in regards with Susan only. He was very, very persistent that he did not rape her. They had a sexual relationship and he shouldn't be charged with that crime. He got a retrial in December of the same year, 1998, so very quickly afterwards. Once again, he was found guilty of sexually violating, raping Susan Burdett, uh, but a hung jury in regards to her murder. So if you remember at the start when I told you the crime, I said there was evidence of sexual activity, which was assumed rape. And I said that because obviously with Malcolm coming out and saying, yeah, but we had a sexual relationship, it's like, you know, if that was true, then that means that there was evidence of sexual activity. But he did. He he raped and he killed her. But we'll get to that. So in October of 1999, the Court of Appeal rejects Tainer's convictions and say that he needs to be retrialed. So the Court of Appeal are like, all right, this is new. Malcolm has been charged with the rape, so we need to relook at Tainer. Perfect. Have a look at Tainer. Have a look at his quote-unquote confessions and the way he behaved and just everything with his involvement of this case. So in March of 2000, Tainer appealed his conviction because of Malcolm and he had a brand new team of lawyers. Now at the retrial, once again, the prosecution relied heavily on these confessions that Tainer made meaning just because he guessed that there was paper on the floor from a suitcase. Like, it's not even a confession. He knew one detail. He didn't even know it. It was an accident. Anyway. But then new evidence was brought in that Tainer and Malcolm were associated. And this time it was Martha McLaughlin, his cousin, who testified against Tainer. And she said that she saw the two men together on three or more occasions. Like... Uh, Malcolm Rewa's name was never brought up at the first trial. So why is it now all of a sudden being brought up at this trial? It's just very infuriating. Uh, Tainer's defense, again, said his DNA was not at the scene. He just wanted daughter for his he just wanted money for his daughter. And now said that with Malcolm's conviction of being an aggressive raper, only Malcolm is the culprit. But he gave no new evidence in the second trial, nor did he give any better explanation as to why he falsely gave information. So once again, in June of 2000, Tainer was convicted of the aggravated burglary, rape and murder of Susan as a co-conspirator to Malcolm. And not once in this trial was Tainer's mental capacity mentioned. Straight away, his defense team appealed, but they were dismissed. So now let's talk about why the likelihood of Tainer and Malcolm working together is just absolutely freaking ridiculous. So first off, at the time of the murder, Tainer was 16 and Malcolm was in his 40s. He was like 43 or something. Second, Malcolm had had a erectile dysfunction, so why would he want someone else to know this? Uh, Number three, Malcolm was nicknamed Hammer, but also Lone Wolf. This was due to the fact that he would spend mornings running with his huskies on Mangari Mountain, and he had a car decal decal, decal, with the words Lone Wolf on his vehicles. So if he was a Lone Wolf, why would he be working with anybody? Why would he be working with a 16-year-old boy who couldn't even spell his name? Like, it's just absolutely... 
ridiculous, but the most insane notion that these guys work together, that is just, oh, I'm getting so frustrated because, and I can't even speak. The most ridiculous notion that these guys work together is the fact that they were both affiliated to gangs. But the reason why that's ridiculous is because Highway 61 and the Mungo Mob are not friends. They are the biggest rival gangs in Auckland area, along with, what is it, Black Power and, and the other gang. I don't know, there's so many gangs in New Zealand, I can't keep up. But Highway 61 and Mungo Mob are not friends. So they would never, ever, ever be caught together unless they were fighting. So at the time of Tainer's retrial in 2000, he had already spent six years in jail. Tainer would end up spending a total of 21 years behind bars for a crime he quite obviously did not commit. And he served his sentence in Parimarimore Prison, which is a maximum security prison with the worst of the worst of New Zealand criminals. And just to give you an idea, Someone who is currently serving their time there now is Brenton Tarrant, who was the perpetrator of the Christchurch mosque shootings that happened back in March of 2019. Also, Graham Burton, who was on a murderous rampage in Lower Hutt, which is actually where I live. So we will talk about him in another episode, I'm sure. But that's just to give you an idea of what kind of criminals. They are the worst of the worst. And he got into fights quite regularly. And he lost a lot of them. Uh, Tainer is quite short. He's quite stout with his um, FASD. A lot of his growth was underdeveloped. And he lost a lot of fights. We know that rapists, pedophiles, those kind of criminals they get treated very differently in prison and they're treated terribly by inmates as well and unfortunately Tainer was subjected to a lot of this abuse from other inmates if he got a visitor it would be once every two years Tainer did attempt to take his own life and he was subjected to quote unspeakable things end quote and I mean this quite literally Tainer has never fully digressed about what he endured in prison and he won't. He won't ever say what happened in later interviews. Those who represented him and those involved with his case would say that they don't even know because Tainer won't say. Uh, however, while in prison, Tainer did play rugby for the Parimarimo Raiders and he did turn to Christianity. He was baptized and he read the Bible every day and just hoped for a miracle. So from 2000 to 2015, over these 15 years, Tainer made 13 appearances to the parole board. At these hearings, he repeatedly denied that he had any part in Susan's murder, but this made it very difficult for the board to grant him parole because it looked as if he didn't have any remorse or take any responsibility. Now, even though he didn't have to, that's not what you do at a parole hearing. That's what a trial is for. If you're appealing to a parole board, you have to show that you have learnt your lesson and that you're not going to re-offend. So it just wasn't the appropriate place to say you weren't involved. I hope that makes sense. In the September of 2011, so 11 years after the retrial, Tainer applies to the Governor General for the exercise of the Royal Prerogative of Mercy, which is essentially 
another way of looking for a pardon. But his application was put on hold just simply due to the backlog backlog of applications that had been sent in. In 2013, Tana appeals to the Privy Council, which is over in London, England. And this is where things finally start to look up for Tana. He was granted permission to take his case to the Privy Council in England. However, in the April of 2014, Tana was finally released on parole. At a parole meeting in September, five months after, it was noted that Tana was doing well, but, quote, given his lengthy time in prison, limited education before being imprisoned, reintegration will be a difficult and necessarily slow process, end quote. No shit, Sherlock. Honestly, of course it's going to be. While on parole, Tainer found work as an apprentice builder. He reconnected with his daughter Chanel, who was 24, and she had a son of her own called Benson, so now he's also a granddad. The news came from London that the Privy Council would hear his case, and the hearing was set for November of 2014. So he and his defence team, which now included police detective turned private investigator Tim McKinnell, for tooth and nail. And I'm just going to say, Tim McKinnell did an absolutely phenomenal job with Tainer. He took on his case pro bono, and he got medical professionals, psychologists, psychiatrists, police officers who believed Tainer was innocent, uh, evidence of unfairness with paying witnesses to testify against him, like just everything. He fired everything into this hearing to get Tainer's name cleared. Now, one of the medical professionals finally diagnosed with Tainer, sorry, diagnosed Tainer with FASD and Arno and went into extreme detail as to how he showed these signs in police interviews back in 1993. His process of judgment, reasoning, planning and organizing were not normal. Dr. McGinn, who was a clinical neuropsychologist, said that at the time of the interviews in 1993, Tana, who was 17, had the mental capacity of an eight-year-old. So can you imagine asking your eight-year-old ne- like nephew or cousin or whoever to talk about a murder? Like, of course they're going to lie about things. Of course they're going to embellish details. Of course they're going to like try and be cool and funny and tough. Like, like the fact that police can't, like continued to do so, it just makes no sense. Uh, Doctor McGinn put Tana through tests at the you know f- in order for this hearing. So in two thousand and fourteen, when Tana was in his thirties, and these were tests like word associations or color recognitions or those. Uh, those type of tests where you have like the word yellow, but it's colored in red and you have to say the name of the color, that kind of thing. And he struggled and he, you know, as well in his thirties, like it just proved beyond reasonable doubt that Tainer's confessions back in 1993 were completely unreliable. And honestly, if they had got Dr. McGinn in a lot earlier or any of the other medical professionals involved, things would have been very, very different for Tainer. Then on the 3rd of March 2015, the Privy Council quashes all of Tainer's convictions relating to the death of Susan Burdett, meaning 
he was pardoned, he was cleared, there, uh, he was ordered not to be retried, all of his parole restrictions were abolished. He was finally proved to be an innocent and free man. In June of 2016, New Zealand government offers $2,520,949.42 as compensation for Tainer's time in jail. However, private investigator Tim McKinnell said that this was an absolute insult. Like, how could you put a price on what Tainer had missed out on? And they appealed that it be adjusted because of inflation as well. It changed a lot since he was imprisoned. So in September of 2017, Tainer was compensated an extra $988,099, bringing his total compensation to $3,509,048. So who murdered Susan Burdett? Well, Malcolm Rewa did, obviously. After Tainer was deemed an innocent man, the Crown Prosecution ordered for a third retrial for Malcolm Rewa solely for the murder of Susan since he had already been tried and found guilty of the rape twice. In 2019, Malcolm walked into the High Court and while maintaining his story once again, accusing Tainer, accusing Dallas, uh, Susan's son, after three hours of deliberation, the jury found Malcolm Rewa guilty of the murder of Susan Burdett and sentenced him to spend the rest of his natural life in prison. Quick note, Malcolm was serving his sentence and is still serving his sentence in Parimarimo prison. He was a few cell blocks away from Taina when he was there serving time for a crime that Malcolm committed. Tension in that prison, let me tell you. But with the jury finding Malcolm guilty, this marked the end of one of the longest running cases in New Zealand history. And it finally brought the Burdett family closure after 27 years. So just quickly, Susan Burdett's family never believed that Tainer committed the crime. Tainer has had many conversations with Susan's brother after he was deemed innocent. And, and Tainer apologized for putting him and his family through the devastation of hearing what happened to Susan over and over and over again. Like their family was subjected to hear how she had been like sexually assaulted and raped over and over. Like it's just horrific. But uh, Susan's brother and his uh, his ex-wife, they both came out and said that they feel sorry for Tana for what happened to him and that they never believed that he did it. So where is Tana Porter now? Since his release and pardon, Tainer has spent a lot of time away from the public eye. He continues to work as a builder. He has actually fought in a few boxing matches for charity. And he got to meet uh, Joseph Parker, who is a very famous boxer. Um, and he works hard at being the best father and grandfather to Chanel and her son, Benson. He has done a few interviews and whether it's due to his FASD, his shy nature, or just sick of talking about it, he literally doesn't say much in interviews at all. And honestly, I, no one can blame him. Nobody wrongfully convicted has spent more time in prison than Taina Porter in New Zealand history. Like, not even close. Not even close. And that, my lovely listeners, is the tragic tale 
of Susan Burdett, a victim of a brutal crime who didn't receive proper justice for 27 years, and also the tale of Taina Porter, a kid who just wanted some money would end up paying in a much larger way. And he spent way more time in prison than he should. It's completely uh, unjustifiable what he went through. Yes, he was a petty thief and a car criminal when he was younger, and who knows where that could have led to. But he didn't have to spend 21 years of his life incarcerated just to set him straight. But please let me know your thoughts on today's episode. Don't forget to rate and review. But until next time, be safe, be good, be better, and all that cheesy crap. And I will see you all next week for another episode of Coffee and Crime.